Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about another podcast you should be listening to. You obviously like listening to powerful and inspiring women. So I want to tell you about another show that highlights women who are trailblazers and generally kick ass wherever they are. Latina to Latina, hosted by broadcast veteran Alicia Menendez, lets you listen in on intimate conversations with some of the most fascinating Latinas in the U.S. These women are changing the world in media, business, fashion, fitness, and so many other fields. From Hollywood power producers to chefs building culinary empires to activists redefining bravery, guests on Latina to Latina are the types of women you'll come to admire. Listen and subscribe to Latina to Latina wherever you listen to podcasts and visit latinatolatina.com for more. Okay, let's get to the show. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, coworkers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. Welcome back to Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I started this season off by talking to four women I know from different parts of my life. Now, each of those women gets to pick someone from her life to talk to. Last episode, former Business Week editor-in-chief Megan Murphy spoke with her partner, Hillary Rosen. If you missed it, go back and check it out. This episode, my new friend, Denora Gattaccio, is talking with someone from her life. If you missed my interview with Denora, go back to episode four. Okay, let's get to it. Hello, Glenda. Thank you so much for joining the web. I can't wait to hear your story. I'm going to start by introducing myself. I'm Denora Gattaccio. I'm the New York City Executive Director at Generation Citizen. I am presently speaking to you from the Dominican Republic because I'm on spring break with my children. So thanks for taking the time to speak with me. And I'd love to have you introduce yourself for a minute. Hey, Denora. I am actually sitting in dreary early spring New York City, Brooklyn. I'm Glenda Carr. I am the co-founder of Higher Heights a national organization building the collective power of Black women from the voting booth to elect an office. So I'm so excited about the conversation today. By way of a little bit of background, I'd love if you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you were born, and what started you on this path today. Great. Yes. So I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. I just celebrated a birthday on March 8th. Happy belated birthday. Uh, Thank you. So the reason why I brought that up is, you know, as a child, obviously I love my birthday. But as an adult doing this work around women's leadership, the the notion that I was born on uh, International Women's Day has been, you know, a special opportunity. I've obviously now been 
working on my birthday. But what I love about it is it allows me to celebrate women from across the country. Who am I? I'm the great-granddaughter of Carolee Dickens. She was born in 1895 and died shy of her 100th birthday. So here's a Black woman who was born at a time where she wasn't able to own property, didn't have a right to vote, had a third-grade education because she didn't have educational opportunities or career opportunities. But she dreamt a dream bigger for me and my brothers than we could have ever imagined. She wanted me to live in a world that didn't have glass ceilings or that I was confined by walls or doors. So I grew up in a very civically active family. Another birthday story is, you know, my parents gave me some great jewelry on major birthdays, 12th, 16, 18, 21, don't have a piece of that jewelry uh, at all. But what I remember is on my 18th birthday, my mother drove me down the city hall and registered me to vote. And until the day she died, she called me and my brothers on every election to ensure that we voted. So that's the type of family we grew up in. We knew that we you know, had the responsibility not only individually to be part of this democracy, but that we had a responsibility to organize our communities in a way that would move you know, our community to higher heights. Is that where the name of Higher Heights comes from, or did you just weave that in? I just, you know, an opportunity to throw some branding in there. And actually where Higher Heights came from. So my background is I came from a civically engaged family, but we also came from a musically inclined family. So my Mm -hmm. undergrad degree is actually in music and arts management. So this was not actually supposed to be my pathway, but I always believe that I am put on pathways for a reason. And so never performed, finished my degree program, realized halfway through my degree program, I did not want to perform and stumbled across this work. You know, my after five passion of being civically engaged became my nine to five. And so I spent six years working for the New York state legislature as the chief of staff of a Brooklyn senator, and then went on to run a statewide advocacy organization, organizing voters around public school reform. And so after the 2010 election cycle, if you work in politics, sometimes you find yourself not having a job. (laughs) <laughs> and so was trying to figure out my next steps. Took a good friend to coffee in Brooklyn, Kimberly Peeler Allen, and we were complaining about the lack of diversity oftentimes in the progressive community space and the, the notion of being in a, a, at a, an event or a fundraiser waving at the other person of color and <laughs> like, hi. And we said, well, what are we going to do to change that? And literally that day, we were like, we should start our own organization and came up with a name that day, came up with a framework and spent two years researching kind of what this would look like to build an organization uniquely designed for and by Black women to harness our political power. I remember actually being pregnant, I think, with Layla when we yeah. met to talk about this mission that you were striving for and how I could become a part of it and support it. And so really, I'm just committed to the cause and I'm so excited that we get to have this interview today for Wonder Media Network that Skype is hosting for us. I want to let all the listeners know a little bit more about you. So tell me, Glenda, what drives you? What do you think is your personal mission statement and what do you think it includes? Which is like the perennial question, life mission statements. Oh, that's a hard (laughs) one for me. And I also look back up is not only did we meet when you were pregnant, we also had our first salon conversations when you were like pregnant. Oh my goodness. Um, See, I'm committed. Higher heights for life. Yeah. And so, you know, I think in this moment thinking through kind of your personal mission statement that it's, I think, an exciting time for women as I think through, you know, my place in the ecosystem that I am inspired by the possibilities that exist for women. But for me, I'm unapologetically excited about the possibilities that exist for Black women to step in into and own our leadership in the way that not only strengthens our own personal ways to tackle our leadership opportunities and challenges, 
in this time. Um, so I am, what drives me now is this moment. At the time, uh, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris in September of last year came to us. She's been active in our work. I actually remember Denora that like literally what, two years ago or three years ago now, she came to our Sunday brunch in New York City. So she's aware of our work. And so she said last year at a reception um, during the Congressional Black Caucus that this organization was built for this moment, right? That the fact that we had this vision, that we knew that there was a a hole in the ecosystem that uniquely Black women could organize a network to fill, and that who would know that from 2011, where Just an idea on a piece of a paper that we ripped out of a notebook, would come to a point where everyone is realizing the importance of Black women's political leadership. So frankly, like what drives me and what my personal current mission is twofold. It is the work of higher heights, but it's the notion as I continue to step into and own my leadership, that I'm also helping to create an environment where other women like you and women across this country realize and are inspired to step through our fears to be able to step into that leadership. And do you think that, you know, as you think about this moment and where you are and how you've, you and Kimberly have shaped higher heights, that this is the work that you are meant to be doing as you grow up, if you will, right? Because you told me in the beginning about your life as, which I didn't know, as a in the arts major world and really being an arts inclined person. I'm, I'm so, I didn't know that. That was a great fun fact about Glenda. Like, is what you're doing right now with Higher Heights, your kind of grown up self? Is this what you envisioned you'd be doing? Is it how you see yourself, you know, striving for the future? It is. I think, you know, I always believe that I always am not where I thought I was supposed to be. I'm exactly where I was meant to be. So, you know, my name is Glenda. Um, not my parents say that I was not named after the Good Witch of the North, although our family are huge Wizards of Oz. <laughs> and oh my goodness, I love red shoes and I wear them often. So you know, when you look at the Wizard of Oz as a roadmap to my life, something that Glenda said to Dorothy was that you always had the power; you just needed to know you had it. That um, I absolutely believe that my God has placed me in the space that I need to be in and that we are creating the path. So but I also still believe that I'm still figuring out what I want to be in my next phase of my life. And that will continue to be uh, the ability for me to tap into my creative self, which comes out of, I think, my musical background and my cerebral political strategist self. So I'm excited to figure out what my 60-year-old, 65-year-old self will be. Because I think we all are in a stage where we're growing and stretching. But I do believe in this moment, this is exactly where I'm meant to be. And I'm excited about the path for my next phase of growing up. So I hear there's going to be like some iteration of higher heights that's going to be like the intersection of arts and music and Black women's leadership. And we just got to figure out how to bring that to fruition. I feel like you could be influencing the entire art sphere. They'll have like songs about Black women's power, all of that. <laughs> yeah, we already actually have a Black Women Lead soundtrack powered by Spotify. So y'all can go to the hashtag Black Women Lead playlist and have an empowering selection of Black women singing about our power and leadership. I, so I did not know that. That was not like the layup that it sounded like to the listeners out there. But now I know what I'm going to listen to on the beach today. That is going to be the hashtag Black Women Lead soundtrack for my day, powered by Spotify. So thanks for the playlist on the beach. So thinking back a little bit about, you know, how you got to this moment and the fact that you are so present and so committed to the work that you're doing now and that it aligns with your own personal mission statement. When did you first become politically aware? Like, how did you know? You said your, your mom took you to register to vote at 18, but 
you know, from there to like, you know, the college years and then working for a state senator, how did you know that this was where you were, the path you were supposed to take, if you will? I don't think I knew it was the path I was supposed to take. It was a path that just kind of continued to be presented. As I said, you know, I thought I was going to be a musician or at least be a manager of a musician. But like I said, voting was very important to my family. My father was a community organizer. So what we did on weekends or what we were stuffing envelopes for our parents, whatever our parents were working on, probably had no choice. We were sitting, similar to your, your children, probably sitting in the back of rooms of some meeting. <laughs> And not knowing that that was influencing the way we thought things would be. My mother used her political power to advocate to ensure that my brothers and I had access to some of the best schools, even though we lived in an inner city. She advocated for us to be in a program that allowed us to go to some of the best schools in Connecticut. And so watching her be empowered and to use her voice and to fight um, just showed that we had a voice and that we shouldn't just take the status quo. It just Mm. wasn't acceptable. It was about question to question. And she was... What I loved about her is she was comfortable. My, my mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother were comfortable in being in rooms, regardless who was in the room. So that confidence that I think we see when Black women leave, regardless of our economic background, social economic backgrounds, our education background, that we will boldly come and sit at a table and fight and advocate and give voice. And particularly if you're doing that for your kids, you know, she would knock a wall down. And so in college, you know, I joined a historically, you know, black sorority. I was actively engaged. I went to a predominantly white school system my entire life from first grade to my undergrad. So making sure that, you know, I went to a university where we wanted to ensure the black students wanted to ensure our voices were heard. Just the day to day life always positioned me to ensure that my voice was being heard, but not recognizing kind of full circle the importance of that until as, you know, working as an adult. And I think my work in a state Senate office that had a rich, diverse constituency and a diverse social economic spectrum of constituents also showed the importance of the squeaky wheel gets the oil in our democracy. And regardless who the constituent was, that they felt like they, that their voices mattered and that that senator was bringing their voices to Albany, which is the capital of New York. I love that because, right, for me, the phrase is always democracy is a full contact sport, right? And so you can't, there's not just one way in which you're going to accomplish change, but we also don't live in a system in which we coordinate our leaders and then wish them adieu, right? So it's always got to be about how you can use all the tools in the toolbox to accomplish the change you're seeking. What's your most memorable voting experience, right? Obviously, you've been a voter for a long time. If you can remember the time that you felt an experience that was the most powerful as a voter, what would that be? Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> She's like, look, she done went off the script. <laughs> so I, I, will, I will also share from a voting perspective is that you have to make a vote plan. So one of my most memorable voting cycles would particularly be last year where I had a voter voting plan fail. <laughs> so I hope the listeners are listening to this because this is this is the part, right? It, but the plan is only as good as the backup plan. Yeah, and it's one of the we, we've always had through our nonpartisan voting work called Black Women Vote this whole make sure you make a voting plan. So we thought I was practicing what we preach and um, realized I was out traveling, hadn't done my absentee ballot and, you know, cost prohibitive not to be able to fly back home for the primary. So, you know, I've been very candid in going because I had a voting plan fail. I didn't get to exercise my right to vote in the primary. I think we all could say we're not perfect voters and that we've been consistently consistent in voting. I can by all means say that and recognizing that even the good intentions of wanting to be civically engaged isn't always there because you may have not made um, made a voting plan. So go make your voting plan for the 2019 and 2020 election cycle. So 
that would probably be the you know most memorable voting, non-voting experience that I had. Um, and obviously, I think it is exciting to be able to vote for your friends. So I've been in in this work so long that we're now seeing friends thinking about running for office to friends and colleagues and just people that I inspire and admire um, running for office. And then the cherry on top of that Sunday is the ability to be able to vote for them. I think my most memorable moment, I didn't get to vote for her, but I sure enough volunteered for her, is Ayanna Presley. One of the first electeds that we met when we started Higher Heights, and she came to a program we've organized in Massachusetts, and we cold-called her. We were looking for local electeds, and someone's like, oh, a woman, a Black woman was just recently elected city council member in Boston, the first woman of color ever, and we cold-called her. Wow. And she answered a call and came and um, talked at this event. And one, she became a, a zealous supporter of our work but also became a personal friend. And so I had the opportunity this year to attend the State of the Union as the guest of Representative Brenda Lawrence from Michigan and to sit in the visitor's gallery, which is above the floor, and actually see not only the five Black women that Higher Heights helped to send to Congress 50 years after Shirley Chisholm was sworn into that body as the first Black woman to actually see a friend. I literally was like, that's my girl. She's actually really, like, you're a congressional member. <laughs> I couldn't scream, couldn't text, couldn't take a picture because you can't bring your phone. Oh, and I didn't know that. Fun fact. Literally, when I leave the State of the Union, I have tons of messages like, you did not take any pictures. You didn't. I was like, because they take your phone. Literally, the only thing you could bring in, and I think it's just for the State of the Union, I believe. Like, obviously, if you were a visitor normally, I think you can bring it in. I'm not sure. But definitely for the State of the Union, you, it was like your ticket and your claim tag is all I got to bring in. Very cool experience, and I think it is important to show that democracy continues regardless of that we're living in this hyper-political environment, you know, conservative, you know, like left-left-leaning to, you know, right-right-leaning, that ultimately, you know, the, the capital is where we govern. And to be able to be in a space with a president that I may personally disagree in, but recognize and watch our actual democracy continue to, to move forward and to see, you know, for me to see the visible increase of women in that body was inspiring. Uh. Hi, Shira. Hey, Jenny. How's it going? It's good. How about you? I'm good. I just got off a Skype call with our intern, Emma, in North Carolina. How convenient. It was so convenient. She was having problems with the CRM, and I was able to chat with her over Skype and walk her through it. It was fantastic. Aren't we lucky? Because this first season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. Skype is software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and voice calls, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in groups. And people also use Skype to send instant messages and share files and send gifts. So thank you to Skype for sponsoring this season. I should also note that while Skype facilitates conversations like the one on this episode, that doesn't mean that Skype approves of or agrees with any of the opinions being shared. Those belong solely to the people who are speaking them. Okay, let's get back to the show. Bye. I want to shift gears a little bit because, right, some of the questions in here, you could do these slam dunk. But one that struck me was this notion of radicalism and whether you would consider yourself as someone who is radical when you think about the work that you're doing at higher heights. 
I will share that as my own journey in leadership. So I probably wouldn't call it radical because I consider myself, a, you know, like a very conservative leader. <laughs> I'm like, clearly this wasn't radical. It's just a little something that Kimberly and I like wrote on a piece of paper. Cooked up at a coffee shop in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. So literally people hearing, spending times and hearing not only women that have higher heights have supported as candidates to women that are in the network. I think Others believe that it was a bold statement, a bold move for us to do exactly what Shirley Chisholm had said, which is you can't make progress whimpering, complaining on the sidelines. You make progress by implementing ideas that oftentimes there are great ideas that never get off the sidelines. And so I do believe in theory that this was radical. It was bold. And sometimes it's radical and bold because you have to take chances. Research has pointed to that, as you know, women oftentimes don't take bold moves or risky moves because of a sense of fear of failing. I fall straight into that scenario that oftentimes our male counterparts, you know, as you know, a male, our male counterparts are, will jump out, fail, dust themselves off, start over again. I think, you know, sometimes it's not the luxury of women and particularly black women to be able to be risky because we are taking care of family members, we are taking care of the households. So, you know, in, in theory on paper, I would say just the fact that we, you know, stepped out and did something bold would be considered radical, but the inner doubt in me that I still struggle with every morning would be like, no, it was just something we did, just a little. Little thing, little thing we gonna do just to harness the political power of black women, you know, don't worry about us. Tell, tell me more about how you got to this moment, given the, the radical nature of the idea, right? Because there are a lot of good, fun facts, kind of talking points about the power of Black women that I don't think our listeners are aware of. And I just want you to understand, kind of paint that picture about the power of Black women and why what you're doing is not radical, but is in fact what Black women need and what our country needs. Yeah. So, you know, Black women are drivers of our economy, drivers of our voting, you know, our democracy because of our voting strength, and we are drivers of culture. So Nielsen does an annual report on African-American women consumers, and they did this great report in 2017 about the power of Black women. And one of the things that it shows is that Black women, we control almost 80% of the money spent in the Black community. So Black spending is over a trillion dollars. So you're now talking about Black women driving over $700 billion a year, right? We make the economic decisions in our household. Black women are a solid voting block, right? As it relates to Democrats, candidates, particularly on a national level, can't build a pathway to winning an election if they don't have a coalition of Black women. We are issue voters. Black women are a powerful voice around culture. So according to Nielsen, Black women are trendsetters, that not only are other Black women looking to us about what we're saying, what we're wearing, how we're wearing our hair, <laughs> to um, the mainstream society looks to Black women. We have all of this economic power, electoral power, and kind of like I say, this cultural, this power to shape culture in conversations, particularly online. Black women are the largest users of social media. We spend three to five hours a day more on social media than the general population. Many of our moments have been born out of that. Black Lives Matter was born out of, you know, three Black women being upset and frustrated around the treatment of African-Americans and police brutality. And so that being said, 
you have all of this power, yet still the 23 million Black women in this country are underrepresented and underserved, right? So although we celebrate the record gains of Black women being elected to office, even with those gains, we are severely underrepresented. You know, even though we had record gains in Congress, Black women are approximately 8% of the population, but we're still just 4% of Congress. So there's work that needs to be done. And when we don't have seats at decision-making tables, you then see, you know, the policies that have been affecting Black women, right? So we suffer from the high incidence of cervical cancer, breast cancer, heart disease, strokes. We're 21 times more likely to die of HIV and AIDS in the 21st century. We make 65 cents every dollar a white man makes. Equal pay day is coming up in April for women, white women and Asian women. Black women have to work almost until August to make what a white man made in one year. And Latinas have to work all the way into October to make what a white man makes in one year. So we're all like, pay me my whole dollar. Right. And that actually crosses from a woman who makes an hourly wage to a woman working in an office. And so for us, this work is not just about electing Black women for Black women's sake. It is about making sure that we have diverse decision-making tables. And when you have diverse decision-making tables, they make better decisions. And for me, it is about building economically um, stable, educated, healthy, and safe communities for Black women. And when we do that, it actually is not just in benefit to Black women and our families, but to the nation. So as we round out the interview, I want to I want to talk about something that hopefully won't be too controversial, but given the listeners a heads up that this is all very personal for everyone. What is your relationship like with religion and how does that fit into your life? And did that, was that a part of your upbringing, if you will? The guiding principle for me is my faith and my God. You know, when uh, we were thinking about starting Higher Heights and stepping off of our day-to-day work, you know, it is fearful about stepping away from, you know, an income that you already know to start something new. Uh, Again, the whole, you know, fear piece. And my brother said to me, you will never know your greatness until you step into the darkness. And, And that darkness is your ability to know that you'll be guided by your faith. And so the road to where we are with Higher Heights was actually guided by my faith and the ability for me to decide to step off the sidelines, step into the darkness for us to be able to see the light on the other side. And so Kamala Harris, as I may have mentioned in 2018, had said that Kimberly, our board members, members like you, Denora, and the members across this country have built this organization for this season. And I believe that is we've walked by faith to be in this season. As we think about how to close out this podcast, Give the listeners some words of inspiration about how we continue to do the good work that Higher Heights does, and hopefully that I continue to do good work at Generation Citizen to make this world a better place. We each have a role in this democracy, and we, it's about finding that role. Not everybody needs to run for office. We do all need to vote. So it is figuring out what is your, your space. I, we use an analogy all the time around shoes, right, because I love shoes. It is put on your running shoes and run for office, put on a pair of sneakers and go to your state capitol or your city hall and lobby. Donate a pair of shoes to, to support somebody. So instead of going to buy a pair of shoes like I am this weekend, consider you know using that money to support a candidate. So it's just figuring out what is the piece of fabric that you can uniquely help to weave the democracy that we want. And there are many ways to be engaged. You can you know, become a part of the Higher Heights Network and we always will find ways for you to be engaged. But you know, if we really want to move this country to higher heights and to ensure that every citizen is able to exercise their right to vote, exercise their ability to share what their vision is for this country or to serve in elected office, that um, we all have to be committed to the work. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. Our next episode starts the third link in each interview chain. I interviewed my friend Sosie Bacon in episode one. Then Sosie interviewed her mom, Kira Sedgwick, in episode five. Next episode, stay tuned for Kira's conversation with someone else from her life. For the next step in Denora and Glinda's chain, Glinda gets to pick someone who she wants to interview. Stay tuned for episode 12 to hear their conversation about politics, gender, religion, and identity. I'm so excited to test out this new kind of podcast with you. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brower. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week.